joining me on the panel, the Australian Director of Human Rights Watch, Elaine Pearson. Hello. Research Fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies, Simon Cowan, is back in Canberra. Political Editor at Guardian Australian, Catherine Murphy, joins us. And in Melbourne, the Director of Asia Link Diplomacy at the University of Melbourne, Erin Watson-Lynn. Hello. Now, if you're on Twitter, you can join in our respectful conversation there. You just have to use the hashtag the drum to find others. And you can also look for us on Facebook. Now, the Prime Minister says that he did not know Andrew Hastie was planning to use parliamentary privilege to say a Chinese-Australian businessman co-conspired to bribe a senior United Nations official. The influential Liberal backbencher accused the Chinese Communist Party of covertly seeking to influence Australia's media, universities and politics. But also made allegations against an Australian citizen, Dr Chow Chak Wing, who he says has donated more than $4 million to both major political parties since 2004, as well as $45 million to universities in Australia. And he says is the real person referred to in court indictments as CC3. That's in relation to the bribery of former President of the UN General Assembly, John Ash. Today, the Prime Minister revealed he had no forewarning that Hastie would make the comments, but that the claims were nothing new. Dr Chow has disputed previous allegations made against him. Meanwhile, Chinese state media has called for Beijing to cancel Prime Minister Turnbull's visit later in the year. In a lengthy editorial, the Global Times newspaper has also suggested Beijing could cut Australian imports by billions of dollars, saying that China has been very friendly toward Australia, but their arrogant attitudes in return over the past two years have become a virtual example of what it means to bite the hand that feeds. The cooling of bilateral relations between the two may last for a while, perhaps a few years or even longer. It will be a good lesson for Australia to learn while also setting a precedent for other nations to follow in that there are no benefits for any country that chooses to take provocative measures against China. And of course we have our resident expert on the panel here this evening to talk through us. All of this is Meriden Varrell, and she's the director of the East Asia Program at the Lowy Institute. Dr Varrell, welcome to the drum. Thanks. Thanks for having me. How concerned should we be about the allegations made in, under parliamentary privilege last night? So, as you mentioned before, um, there's, there's really nothing new that's come out here, except that the uh, naming of Dr Chow as CC3 um, has been, uh, um, apparently there's evidence to say that, that he is this guy behind the Sherry Yen case of, of bribing the UN General Assembly head uh, back in 2013. That's really the new element mm. of it. Well, how, how impactful do you think these remarks will be? How will they be interpreted in China? We've seen some, in, you know, very hostile uh, indications. What you've studied, kind of attitudes within China itself and their own foreign policy for your, for your dissertation. Yeah, well, I mean, China, China sees... Um the world is pretty much against it. it, it they really see the, the international relations sphere as an ideological battleground. And so this kind of, um, this kind of, the way in which Australia is talking about China feeds into that narrative of persecution and bullying and humiliation. And they really get defensive about it very quickly. They're, they're quite hypersensitive mm -hmm. about these kinds of things. So, you know, if something like this happened uh, in Australia or in the US, New Zealand, the, the reaction would be very different. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's hard for us to kind of understand how, how why they're reacting in such a strong way. You know, that Global Times piece was really a bit over the top. Yeah. Why is that? It's because they really feel like we've slighted them and we've insulted them. And which part of it? Like, which is the greatest insult in, in all the remarks that have been made? I think for Chinese people, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of 
kind of appropriate performance, especially in diplomatic relations. And if you, if you break that appropriate performance, if you start shouting out, uh, calling out people in a loud way or, or being really pointed or being really direct, it's that kind of symbolic betrayal that really matters to them. I mean, they expect Australia to stand on certain kind of, um, to stand for certain kinds of principles or for certain kind of values that's not new or exciting for the Chinese. They expect Australia should have, you know, foreign, foreign interference laws. They're not surprised by that kind of thing. What irritates them is when um, Australia takes these kind of symbolic punches at them in a really direct and, and public way. Mm. But do you see this response as, as overreach to say $6 billion of you know, Australian exports could now be at risk and we'll really show them how they shouldn't cross China? Look, I mean, from our point of view, it's, it's a bit over the top. Mm. It's a bit unnecessary. But from their point of view, they're trying, they're trying to tell us something. And the, the, that Global Times article, there was a very similar one, basically the same, in Chinese as well. And that's really important for the Chinese um, government and media to be sort of saying to its, its people, we are, we're, we're big and important and we're not going to be pushed around. And those mm. ridiculous little Australian people are going to know that they've done something wrong. So it's, it's really about messaging, it's about face, and it's about, you know, looking like we haven't backed down. Catherine Murphy, can I bring you in at this point? What can you tell us about Andrew Hastie's motivations in doing this? Well, I can't really tell you much, Julia, because he really didn't telegraph his intentions in advance based on what the Prime Minister and senior players in the government have had to say. By his own account, he's sharing information that he regards to be in the national interest, and that's why he stood up and made the contribution he did in the Federation Chamber. Now, we have to view the timing of the, of the, the contribution as a little bit interesting because anybody watching uh, the, the activity of the Turnbull government over the last, say, month uh, would have noticed that uh, several things are happening. The, the public rhetoric on the foreign interference stuff is sort of being dialed down. There's also a full court press. Uh, the Trade Minister, Steve Chobo, has been in China. Uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister, Julie Bishop, used the opportunity of the G20 uh, foreign ministers meeting in Argentina the other day to have quite a lengthy bilateral with her Chinese counterpart. It's pretty obvious uh, to anybody watching that the government is trying to de-escalate diplomatic tensions between the two countries. And uh, then comes this hasty contribution. It's really rather interesting. Right, well, given that, what was the reaction behind this? We saw the, we saw the Prime Minister distancing himself from the comments mm -hmm. today, but what was the reaction behind the scenes in the government well, today? Well, there was sort of... A, <laughs> I think it's fair to describe it as kind of horrified silence last night as, as, uh, as this contribution was playing out. Now, maybe this is all a bit of kabuki. Maybe the Prime Minister knew all along, but I think if he did, he wouldn't have stood up in Parliament today and say he didn't. So... And it's very obvious too today from, obviously the Prime Minister's been very measured in his public remarks, but he has noted that uh, MPs should consider how they use privilege. Also, the Trade Minister, Steve Chobo, this afternoon in an interview with Sky News, uh, publicly defended Dr Chow and uh, again tried to de-escalate. Uh, Chobo wouldn't, for example, mimic the language of the Defence Minister about China's activities in the South China Sea. So... We're sort of seeing the government speaking out different sides of its mouth. Mm. So anyway, it's all very curious and interesting. Erin, can I bring you in here? Um, this, is, this is something that you've studied in depth at details, part of your day-to-day -day work. How, where do you think this leaves our diplomatic relations with China? 
Look, I think it's interesting because if you look back in history, these kinds of tensions are quite normal in any sort of, you know, this geopolitical instability is quite normal when you have a, a power that does rise in this way. Um, but what's really important and something that we've been working on for the last 20 years at AsiaLink is these really important people-to-people -people relationships. And with China, we've got really deep relationships across business, the arts, um, education, diplomacy. We do a a lot of work and a lot of dialogues and a lot of talking to each other, including with um, other powers like the United States as well. So um, I think that beneath all of this is these really deep relationships that um, that's what we've actually got to rely on here and will actually um, persist over time. And the other important thing to mention is not only was uh, was Minister Chobo in China, but at the state and territory level, there's really important relationships and there's a lot of action as well. So Minister Daladakis from Victoria was there, the South Australian Premier Stephen Marshall was there last week. And so that really points to um, other important relationships for Australia at a government and also a non-government level. Now, and what, what are the relationships in terms of the, the soft power, the, the, the push into universities, which is a subject, have been the subject of much kind of overt as well as subterranean discussion? And we know we've, we've had talk today about this 45 million that's been given. We know 15 million went to Sydney University, some money went to UTS. And I understand there have been meetings at Melbourne University, but we don't actually know what transpires and, it's, and, and, and we understand that no money has changed hands, if that's right. Um, how concerned should people be about that kind of exerting of influence? In the university sector, there is really strict due diligence that would take place around donations to universities. So if we're looking at this particular case of, of Dr Chow, uh, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to comment, but I know that uh, with this you know, due diligence that would take place in any of these donations, is that's what we need to rely on with, with the universities. Simon? Look, I'm just on the point of universities and public debate generally. I mean, the, the government has a bill at the moment that's just come back from Senate committee about banning foreign donations and significantly restricting um, the ability of the not-for-profit sector to contribute. And I think we want to be very careful about how we regulate and restrict the participation in public debate, uh, particularly of institutions that are not government institutions or you know sit outside the the issue of corruption, which we're dealing with here. Mm. But I mean, I, I wonder how much of this is actually a reflection of um, the differing attitudes towards China, particularly within the defence community in Australia and the diplomatic community in Australia. And you have to remember, of course, that Hastie's come out of the defence side of things and he's a very serious and sort of um, deep thinker on some of these issues. I mean, I, I doubt very much that he went into this on a whim. Um, he may not have told the Prime Minister, but that doesn't mean that he hasn't thought deeply about these issues. And I'm, I'm interested, you know, to get the thoughts as to whether or not this is actually part of that conflict. I mean, we see Hastie and, and in particular Maurice Payne, again, on the defence side of things, lining up on one side, whereas we have Chobo and, and others on the, on the other side. Indeed, I think it's really important that we remember that there's, the, there's what we do know um, as the public and through the media, and there's also what we don't know in Canberra. And uh, that's to your point about security and national security. There are elements to this that we don't know about, so we can't comment on. Uh, and that's really important to remember. Now back to Australian politics. A looming push within the Victorian ranks of the Labor Party is attempting to end offshore detention. The Guardian reporting today that an urgent 
emergency motion will be debated this weekend at the state conference, which calls on the ALP, when in federal government, to close offshore detention centres, transit centres and other camps on Manus and Nauru within the first 90 days and to bring all the children, women and men who are refugees or seeking asylum remaining there to Australia. It comes after the death of a Rohingya man on Manus Island, which police say is being treated as a very unfortunate apparent suicide. He's a seventh asylum seeker sent to Manus Island by Australia who has died. Also this week, Labor's new member for Batman, Jed Carney, used her first speech to Parliament to say, watch this space. Now, Kath, I'm going to come to you first on this. You had the exclusive on this today. Look, we don't have the details of the motion or the exact numbers, of course, but how, is there any confidence this will pass? Well, it's possible. Uh, there's a process to go through, though, uh, because uh, the way these motions work before conferences, Julia, is they're bowled up and then discussions occur in earnest, amendments happen, right. you know, things get to the floor in the... In, in that order or not. Uh, what we can be certain about is a couple of things. Um, the Victorian State Conference is the precursor, really, to a national conference debate that will occur on this issue in July. Now, I don't think that the Labor, the Labor Party is going to countenance the ending of offshore processing and, and as radical a breakthrough as the Victorian motion that's currently circulating. I don't think that will happen. What I think will happen, though, is a debate about indefinite detention, which is what Jed Carney hung a lantern very solidly over in her first speech to Parliament this week, as, you, as you've mentioned. Now, what happens there is not entirely clear to me yet. Now, uh, I think the discussion will centre around uh, the, this sort of uh, this transformation of detention into mandatory indefinite detention. So where does that lead you conceptually? Well, it means maybe there's, there's a debate about imposing time limits on how long people can be detained offshore as well as, uh, as well as onshore. I think that's likely that we'll see something along those lines. But uh, the national conference resolutions are not yet circulating because the delegations that will attend the national conference are not yet settled. But anyway, uh, it's just one, mm. of those, uh, one of those sort of forewarnings, I suppose, of a major debate that's going to happen over the next couple of months. Right. You think this is the first trigger for it. I, I, I'm, I'm gathering, Elaine, that you, this is a debate that you would welcome. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think to see um, Jed Carney's impassioned speech um, to say that enough is enough, that we need to be doing something to support these people who sought sanctuary in Australia, um, we need to see more of that in politics. And we simply haven't seen it because I think a lot of politicians have been too scared to run another election campaign um, on refugees and asylum seekers. And what would you be arguing, um, as Catherine was, was saying just then, you know, if, if, the, if the Labor Party still says, oh, we still want offshore detention, and then you say, OK, what, what, what is the discussion then to have? It's around, around the question of indefinite detention. It's around the question of medical care. Like, what are the other discussions to be had? Well, I mean, we oppose offshore detention, um, offshore processing in its entirety. Mm -hmm. We don't think that, uh, particularly in terms of uh, holding people on Manus and Nauru, if there was an offshore processing arrangement in place with New Zealand, I think we would be fine with that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, as far as detention is concerned of asylum seekers and refugees, international law is crystal clear. You can only detain people for as long as it's necessary to conduct health and security checks. You shouldn't be detaining people for longer than that because, you know, we can now see, based on what has happened in Manus and Nauru, in this human laboratory, 
what is the effect of prolonged detention? We can see the harm that it has done to these people. I mean, we've had three suicides in the past year on Manus Island. A guy yesterday from, you know, who managed to escape the ethnic cleansing in Myanmar threw himself from a moving bus because he wanted to end his life. So he may have been able to escape Myanmar, but he's not been able to escape Australia's abusive refugee policies. And so something has to be done to, to end this. Um, you know, and it's been compounded by the fact that, you know, last year, all of the services have now been transferred to the PNG government. So that means that they've frittered away the medical services. They've changed to local service providers. Uh, what we've seen now is that they're not getting the adequate mental health care that they need. And, you know, these are people who, for the most part, you know, came to Manus and Nauru fit and pretty healthy. Um, and now they're severely damaged and they're not even getting the right types of care to help them um, overcome the, the trauma that they've experienced. Mm. What should be done, Simon? Well, look, I actually think there needs to be a debate on this for a couple of important reasons. So firstly, the people who are advocating onshore detention actually have to deal with a few things. The first is that 1,200 people died here when we tried this last time. So they actually have to deal with the aftermath of what happened when we dismantled our offshore protection system, when we went away from this and we started bringing people here. We have to con they have to convince the Australian people, both major parties took a the opposite platform. So they have to convince the Australian people that they need to take tens of thousands of more refugees each year. And then, realistically, they've got to come up with an answer for why and how the international system on refugees is going to work. Because right now there are something like 16 million stateless refugees, there's another 20 million displaced people, and there's at least 100 million people beyond that who would welcome the opportunity to come to a safe and prosperous nation like Australia. Now, there is no realistic chance that those people will be settled in Western countries. There is not a single Western country that will take the numbers necessary to make that work, and there's not a populace in a Western country that would actually countenance that proposal. So what we have here is a debate where we talk about the rights of refugees, the rights, how we should deal with these things, but we don't actually deal with the practical matter of how are we going to deal with it if 50,000 people try and come from Indonesia to Australia by boat. Mm. And what's your answer then? I mean, we've got a situation well, we of indefinite to... detention, which is what we're currently discussing. Well, OK, so realistically, those people, the problem was that they didn't want to integrate into communities in Papua New Guinea and Manus. And the unspoken part of that is that the people who live in Papua New Guinea and Manus are in conditions that are not satisfactory, we think are not satisfactory for people to live in. Um, what we need to do is renegotiate the International Refugee Compact and we need to have countries actually willing to stand by the obligations that they have. Because right now there are no countries that are meeting those obligations, but there are also no countries that intend to meet those obligations. So we actually have to try and deal with this separately and, one, and differently. And one of the things we have to do is have a very realistic discussion about what the Australian people want, what Australia as a country can offer and what the international community is willing to accept. Mm. But Simon, yeah. just to jump in there, I mean, I think, you know, one solution, I think if you actually created reception centres in Indonesia, Thailand and Malaysia, I think a lot of people wouldn't want to get on those leaky boats. The reason why they get on the boats is because they can't work in Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia and their kids can't go to school. And I think if you fix those two things, people would be quite prepared to wait it out. I mean, and for a lot of people, they really want to return home. They don't necessarily want to relocate to a country halfway around the world. I mean, if you talk to Rohingyas well, in Bangladesh, they want, they want to go home. And so it's also about the Australian government putting pressure 
on those governments that are committing the abuses so you can create the conditions whereby people can return home. We did see, though, in Germany that when they opened their borders, for want of a better term, that they saw an overwhelming crush of people come. And, you know, they saw something like a million people turn up over the course of a week or two. Uh, the numbers of people we're dealing with here are enormous. And realistically, mm. Australia can't deal with them by ourselves. We, we need a bigger solution than Australia opens up its borders and takes more. Because you'll get to a point where there are so many refugees that the populace won't bear them coming to Australia. And that's not the situation we need to get into. Simon, I think that you, you touch on some really good points there, particularly about what we actually, how we actually deal with this at a practical level. Now, look at a city like Melbourne with its population growth and, you know, where you've got a, a state government that spent a billion dollars not to build and it, uh, the East-West Link, a piece of infrastructure that Infrastructure Australia says needs to be built within the next five years. And then we're going to to risk opening up, uh, you know, the boats again, and one of the great achievements of, you know, the, the Liberal governments in recent years has been stopping these boats coming to Australia. So we're dealing with um, not having thousands of people die at sea, you know, and I know that you, you, no spin can change the fact that people have died in offshore detention, and that's incredibly sad. Uh, but we need to look at this at a practical local level as well. How are we going to deal with uh, a million people, like in Germany, turning up in Australia? We simply don't have the infrastructure right now for the current population growth, and that's just due to internal migration around the country and the current migration rates. So there's real practical questions rather than the sort of higher level um, conceptual thinking around this. And the other point to make is that our government has been incredibly generous with uh, our foreign aid program to Myanmar in particular as well. I think we've given almost $50 million to that refugee program. So, uh, so the government is taking action. It, just because it doesn't mean bringing people here doesn't mean we can't assist in other ways like we have done. When it comes to the rise of robots, depending on who you ask, they're either coming to take our jobs or heralding a great second industrial revolution. So what do the people who've crunched the numbers say? Artificial intelligence will be very good for growth, but very bad for the rate of inequality. Well, that's the verdict of three economists at the International Monetary Fund in a new research paper. They say workers are facing a death spiral of falling wages and an increasing gap between rich and poor. Now, under a worst-case scenario, they say skilled wages could rise by 160%, while unskilled wages fall by 60%. Now, I know that you've done a fair bit of reporting and research on this area. Yes. Do you agree with the concerns raised in this report, Simon? Look, well, I think we need to... We're talking about looking at the evidence, so let's look at the evidence. Right now, there actually is no evidence that there's been a significant displacement of workers by automation and technology. The, the unemployment rate does not actually show that there's a growing core of people who are unemployable as a result of technological change. Um, what we can say, however, and it's, it's very limited, but we can say there are projections in the future that show that the, the amount of jobs lost from automation range from between 8% of jobs to 50% of jobs which is an enormous variation. And it, and it also leads then, of course, to an enormous variation in what you expect the impact of this to be. At the bottom end, at that 8 to 10% range, you expect the, the benefits of this actually to be positive. Um, and what we can see, the evidence does show, that tasks that can be automated are being automated, but jobs are changing. They're not disappearing, they're changing. They're changing so that non-routine tasks form up a greater proportion of the jobs, both for blue-collar and white-collar workers. Mm -hmm. And what we're likely to see in terms of automation, the next step of that is actually the automation of white 
college jobs. Mm. Um, but we have no actual evidence of, of what's going to happen here. All we really have are guesses and estimates. Right. But we can look at what happened in the last Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. There was an enormous displacement of jobs. It happened at the same time where most workers went from living on farms in the countryside to moving into the cities. Mm -hmm. But we did see over the five decades following the Industrial Revolution, wages for people in the bottom 25% rose by 70% in real terms. In other words, we saw an enormous benefit to the poorest people in society by the increase of use of technology. And that's the only evidence we really have of what might happen in the future. So I'm always very sceptical about claims that robots are going to take all our jobs and what we need to do is radically restructure society and incomes to, to take effect for that because I think things like a universal basic income, which is the next step in this little conversation, are deeply, deeply flawed. Okay. Well, what of what of the uh, the other recommendations on the report about the way to in, to improve inequality? Then is through education and tax. Well, look. So there's a problem actually in, in relation to education, and, and it's something that Charles Murray's demonstrated in the U.S. in particular. And and it's that people who are good at taking tests, people who have good cognitive abilities, tend to head off to university. They move into certain suburbs. They marry people who have similar characteristics to them, and then they tend to wall themselves off from the rest of society. Mm. So people who are that cognitive elite are doing fantastically well, but they're actually divorcing themselves from the rest of society. And what's really happening is there's not a lot of opportunities for people at the other end. One of the potential solutions to that is to stop emphasising universities, the only end goal of education, and look at ways that we can get uh, people into trade, say, you know, look at, at alternative pathways to different types of employment that don't mean if you don't get to university degree, you're not going to have a successful life. What did you make? What did you make of the report, Elaine? With, with, I must remind you, the opening line of it was that in the, in, the, in the future, the factory of the future will have one man and one dog, and the man is there to feed the dog, and the dog's there to make sure the man stays away from the machines. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you know we all think that machines are there to make our lives easier, but you read that report and it's really scary. It's like, well, machines are there to take over our lives and take over our jobs. I mean, look, I think. There is a real issue that, you know, certain unskilled jobs are really disappearing and they're disappearing fast. Um, you know, if you look at self-driving cars, new technologies, 3D printers. But what of Simon's point that this is inevitable, it's an adjustment, it's a it's new I think it's creating world. certain new service sector jobs, but I still think that there's certainly a market of workers that aren't really going to be able to adapt well, particularly older workers, middle-aged workers, workers without uh, language skills perhaps, who might have been working in factories for a long time but never needed those skills. So I think it actually is going to be extremely difficult for them to adapt. And I mean, the UN Special Rapporteur on Poverty, when he wrapped up um, his trip to the United States, he did make this recommendation that we need to be thinking about uh, universal basic income in the way ahead. And I know that, you know, in Silicon Valley, where a lot of these discussions about technology are happening, they are also starting to have some of those discussions. So we also need to look at the ways that we, we deal with workers transitioning, though. One of the problems that we have um, is that we keep trying to prop up industries that are no longer viable instead of supporting those workers transitioning to new jobs and picking up new skills. And, you know, you look at what happened in the car industry. We spent more than a billion dollars a year propping up the car industry. Only $15 million of that went to helping workers transition to new jobs. Now, that is exactly the wrong way to go about doing things. You pay $60,000 to workers who work for these companies, but we pay almost nothing to people who are looking to, to move to other industries. All right, we're going to leave it there with our panel. Thanks so much, everyone. Elaine Pearson, Simon Cowan, Catherine Murphy and Erin Watson-Lynn.